Um, I'm clearly not dressed for the occasion. <laughs> I'm going to work after this, so enjoy your sleeps. Please think of me. <laughs> Our first um, reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 31. Starting at verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them. And you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And turn to Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you, to were, as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. job do you do that you dress like that? (laughs) Hope you gave your first week's pay away. (laughs) Not much. Good on you. Sorry, I'm teasing. There you go. You don't have to, right? Just, it's not a rule. Um, Christian freedom. Let me, uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do ask please that um, you would bless this time, help us to uh, focus on what you've given us so richly by your Holy Spirit in the Word of God and um, we uh, ask that by this Word you would transform and change us, help us, help us engage and think deeply about these things, help us be uh, eager to please you in all we do and we do ask that you might transform and change us into the image of Christ, in his name we pray, Amen. One of, the, uh, one of the big reasons I hear people say they don't want to be part of Christianity or uh, institutional Christianity uh, religion 
is that they fear that becoming a Christian will create a life that's restricted and constrained and oppressive. I remember talking to one uh, woman some years ago, she said to me that she didn't want her kids to come to church, our church particularly, but she didn't want to come to church because she was concerned that uh, church would just take the light out of their life. And the way she was thinking was that uh, if, if they came into church, they would learn all these rules and regulations, do this, do that, uh, and, and it will oppress them and create fear. And instead of uh, having lives of freedom uh, and openness and the ability to choose where they want to go, what they want to be and what, who they want to do, who they want to be and so on, they, they would be oppressed by the church. And so many people like this friend um, have chosen to kind of not be associated with institutional Christianity, like coming to a church, but want to continue to have some kind of religious, spiritual life between them and the deity, the, the divine being of some kind, and just live their way with that divine being in freedom, in love, and so on. Um, and I think it's a very a big thing that goes on for people. They're worried about church uh, and all the rules. But then you read Hebrews chapter 13. Did you notice? Uh, It's a series of rules, commands. There's about a dozen of them through the whole chapter. The first half that we're looking at, there's half a dozen or so. But you see, you keep keep on loving one another. Show hospitality to strangers. Uh, Remember those in prison. Marriage should be honoured by all. Keep the marriage bed pure. Um, Be content, verse 5. Verse 7, remember your leaders. Uh, Verse 9, don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. Uh, verse 11, um, uh, make sure you go outside, with, outside the camp with Jesus and so on and so forth. A dozen of these commands. And actually Hebrews 13, there's no sort of sense in which there's some big picture that's flowing through it. It's, it's just this, and this, and this. And as you read it, uh, it's easy to imagine that this is the kind of religious experience we critiqued last week. Now, I don't presume that you were here last week. I hope you were, uh, but maybe you weren't. Maybe you're here for the first time tonight. Um, last week, we, in chapter 12, looked at a contrast between two mountains, two religious experiences. We talked about it. So there was the Mount Sinai religious experience of law-keeping and there was the Mount Zion religious experience of being brought to the heavenly Jerusalem uh, with the great assembly of joyful thousands and thousands of angels. Uh, one was marked by oppression, rule-keeping and fear, and the other one was marked by freedom, joy uh, and reconciliation. And uh, what I want to raise for you tonight is, doesn't Hebrews 13 sound a little bit like Mount Sinai? Rules, do this, do that, keep that, make sure, commands. And doesn't that sound a little oppressive? constraining. As I say, one of the reasons people walk away from church life are this list of rules. Um, It's the thing that they think destroys the good life. Because in many people's mind, the good life is defined by being free. Free to do whatever you want to do and be whoever you want to be. And Hebrews 13 sounds like it is back to Mount Sinai, rules, do this, do that. So what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Well, I, I want to suggest to you that Hebrews 13 is not at all going back to Mount Sinai, as you would expect. It's not at all uh, the fear and oppressive religion of do this, do that. But how is it not that? Two things, just by way of introduction. The first thing, and it's the fundamental thing, is that 
The difference between Mount Sinai and rules-based religion, uh, institutionalised religion if you like, and what Hebrews 13 is talking about with a series of commands, is that rules-based religion and Mount Sinai was this, is based on your performance being the key to your salvation. So Mount Sinai, rules-based law, the Mosaic law, was based on you keeping them so that you might earn God's favour and make it to heaven by your performance. And that kind of religion is oppressive and it does create fear because you never know if you've done enough. So so to go into a, a religious experience where you've got to perform and you've got to do and God one day is going to be the judge who measures whether you've done 51% or, or 49%, just in, just out, that's a fearful thing to experience. It is oppressive. Um, these commands in Hebrews 13 are not that. They're not given by this great preacher to tell us what we have to do to earn our way with God. Instead, they're given to a group of people who have already been saved to help them learn how to live as saved people. You look at chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we, are rece- since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, since we have been saved by the blood of Jesus, by the high priestly role of the great person who sacrifices himself for us, because we have been saved by the blood of Jesus, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, let us be thankful... And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Chapter 13 is how you worship God. Let's worship God as those who are saved with reverence and awe acceptably. What does it look like to live that worshipful life acceptably before God? Hebrews 13 spells it out. And let me just note, worship's not ever reduced to singing. So your worshipping life will include singing. But your worshipping life is everything you do. It's how you love, it's how you show hospitality, it's how you remember those in prison, it's how you think about marriage, it's all of these things are the way you worship. But that's what it is and it's a critically important thing. We don't do good works to earn salvation. Uh, we do good, seek to obey God because we are saved. You, you see, good works doesn't make us saved... Having been saved, we now seek to do good. Profoundly different way of thinking. The old covenant was do good works to get saved, fear. The new covenant is forgiveness. Given salvation by a gift. And so, now, seek to obey your God. There's the first thing. Hebrews 13 is not a a chapter that produces fear and restraint. It's rather a chapter that shows you how to live now uh, as those that are saved. Second thing, these commands in Hebrews chapter 13 are actually good, God's good gift to the saved to further save us. Let me explain that. These are God's good gift to the people who are saved by the grace of God through Jesus to further save us. Now what do I mean by that? The way the Bible considers things, these things is that there's two things we need saving from. We need saving from the penalty of our sin and we need saving from the power of our sin. 
We need saving from the penalty and the power, the penalty. We need saving from the condemnation that sin brings. Sin is rebellion against God uh, and if you rebel against God, uh, it's treason. There is a, a righteous judgment expected upon sin and Jesus comes to save us from the penalty that our sin deserves, our rebellion deserves, to reconcile us back to God. But he also has the intention and had all along to save us from the power of sin that we might live new lives as those that are saved, free from the power of sin in our lives, that we might come to the glory of the perfection of his image bearers that he intends. Sin destroys relationship with God and produces condemnation, he saves us from that, but it also destroys our life. It destroys the perfections that he intends, the glory that he intends as image bearers. And he wants to save us from the power of sin. Um, And so Hebrews 13 is an expression of God saying, "I've, I've saved you from the condemnation and judgment, the penalty. And here's Hebrews 13, here's how to live as people who are beginning to become freed from the power of sin, to actually be changed and transformed as God's children. Um, See, these these aren't the way to be saved. They're the life of those who have been saved. And they're a gift to save us from the power of sin, a good gift from a loving God. And that second one's the one I want to focus on throughout tonight. Does this make sense so far? That second one I want to focus on tonight. Um, I want to show that these commands, and in particular one of them, I want to show that these commands are a good gift from God and are a blessing from God for our good. Because sometimes they don't immediately appear that way. Now the first three, let's race through it. I'm just going to deal with the first three very quickly. I'm going to focus on verse four, actually. But the first three, I think, are fairly obviously God's good gift to change us, to make us um, um, bigger and better than we could have otherwise been. Keep loving one another as brothers and sisters. Love, be people of love. That's not oppressive. Um, Show hospitality to strangers. Have a love for not just your friends and family, but people outside of your friends and family, within the church circle, I dare say, but broader as well. Begin, become bigger people of love. Show hospitality to people beyond just your own circle. That's God's goodness to us. He's saying, learn to be someone who's not just narrow and focused only on. And be, verse 3, in solidarity with those who are in prison. Don't walk away from others who have been brought into hardships. Be people who are big enough to actually connect with everybody. It's a beautiful command, I think it's fairly obvious. Just a quick practicality here, um, there, in terms of hospitality. It strikes me how a previous generation really took this quite seriously um, and I, I, I don't, my sense is that a current generation is not so much, I might be wrong in this, but a previous generation, uh, I remember hanging out with older men and women who made a practice every Sunday at lunchtime to have, to have, a la- to have lunch and to invite uh, new people from church, Uh, strangers they didn't know, uh, into their family lunch as an act of hospitality in fulfilment of Hebrews chapter 13. And it became for many of these uh, uh, families, just it was the expectation that every Sunday you would have lunch and you would have new people there. And it was a beautifully empowering and, and growing experience for everyone as they took seriously what God's Word said. And I'd encourage you, as you're able, uh, in your different contexts to begin. Some of you are not in a family context where you can take charge of what you do on Sundays, of course. But make that a thing that you look forward to and make it a pattern in the future. We've been saved by a generous God to sow generosity to others. It's a gift. These verses are a gift. They're not oppressive. But one of them does seem so. And it's verse 4. 
Look at verse 4. I'm looking to see you look. If you haven't got a Bible and you're wondering what verse 4 says, I'm not going to read it. No, no, no. Um, Bring your Bible along. Uh, Even if you use a phone, that is okay. Just don't do Facebook. Um, Get rid of Facebook. Uh, But let me read to you verse 4. I want to suggest to you verse 4 is not obviously actually a verse that sounds like a good gift. Let me read it to you. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, I don't know your reaction when you hear that. I'm guessing many of you kind of go, yeah, I get it. Christians talk about marriage and I know I should be about it like Christians talk about it. But in my heart, I'm not sure I think it's such a good command. Uh, And when your heart's not aligned with your head, it's actually harder to obey it because you're not really convinced it is the command you should obey. Marriage should be honoured by all. Keep the marriage bed pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Most of us hear it and deep down we think, really? In fact, many of us, as we hear it, are not entirely sure what it means. What does it mean to say marriage should be honoured by all? What does it mean to say the marriage bed kept? What do these things mean? So what I want to do with you tonight, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on this. I want to take us through what this verse means in contrast to the way it might be understood in our community. I want to show you what it means. I want to show you why we find it difficult perhaps to think that it's a good word from God, what's happened in our society and our culture that's led us to think, oh, I'm not sure about this one. And then I want to prove to you that it actually is a good word. You see the steps we're going to go through? So let me explain what it means. What does it mean marriage should be honoured by all? Well, you might think, oh, it seems pretty obvious, but no, what the word marriage? What does the word marriage mean? Uh, the thing we're to honour, marriage, it's actually not clear what that is in our cultural mind. Because we're the culture that has legalised same-sex marriage. Now, without going into the issues there, but just just note this. As soon as you can call the uh, sexual relationship of two men or two women marriage, we now have a very different understanding of what marriage is compared to what the Bible taught that marriage is. We have changed the definition of the word marriage entirely. Now, that may not be obvious to you, but it's simple. Let me, what, what is marriage for us today? This is what I, I want to suggest to you. I, I think most of us believe the word marriage means the public affirmation of one person's romantic sexual love for another person And that's being celebrated. I think most of us think marriage is the public affirmation of one person's romantic sexual love for another person and that they be celebrated in that love and encouraged in it. And so why do we marry? Why might you marry in the future? I think most of us, most of you might well think like this, that um, I would think about getting married because I've found a girl, a boy um, that I really I really am attracted to, I'm in love with and I want to go through a service to publicly celebrate that and have it affirmed. I want to get married. Is that, that's the definition of how we think about marriage. That's why two same-sex can marry because it's just a public affirmation of their sexual love for each other. But that is a very different view from what the Bible understands marriage to be. In the Bible, marriage is about a public declaration 
It's the public declaration of one man and one woman, the declaration they make to each other. It's the public declaration they make to each other of a determination to commit to one another for life as husband and wife in a monogamous sexual union for the sake of creating a new family. That's what the Bible says marriage is. It is, it is a moment where a man and a woman uh, declare to each other publicly their commitment, not their romantic affection, their commitment, not their, their uh, being in love, their commitment to be for each other and be faithful to each other in a sexual monogamous union for life, for the sake of creating a new family. Do you see the difference? It's very subtle but it's profound. Biblical marriage majors on lifelong commitment and the formation of a new family for the sake of any children that might be born, not the feeling of romantic love. (laughs) This is going to show, but it's almost irrelevant whether you have feelings of romantic love, but rather that you commit to be faithful in loving another person in a monogamous union for life. Now wonderfully the expectation is that that loving union will um, grow in affection and fondness and depth of love for one another but that's not the big thing. The big thing is the faithfulness of committing to one another, that a man commits to love and care for a woman for life, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. You see the nature of the vows. It's about a man committing to be for that woman, whether he feels like it, whether it's meaningful for him. He now says, publicly I vow to do this for this woman. And she publicly vows to love this one man for life and be faithful to him, so that in their loving union, the act of sex that not only consummates that love and binds that marriage together further and further, might be the means by which children are born and able to be nurtured in secure and loving care of the mum and dad. That's what the Bible means by marriage. And that is the thing that this passage says should be honoured by all. Not just those who are married, not just, uh, not just those who are enjoying that experience, but everybody should honour it. Single people, young people, widowed people, divorced people. I want to say some comments about divorce shortly. But it is to be, that view of marriage should be honoured by all. Now, is it possible amongst us that we're going, oh, I don't know that I want to honour that. Do you see? There might be, in my head, I know Christians should, but in my heart, I'm not sure I'm bought into it. Well, that's what I want to talk to, you see. Look at the next bit. Keep the marriage bed pure. Keep the marriage bed. Marriage bed is a euphemism. It's another way of talking about the physical uh, life together of a married couple in sex. And of course, uh, what this does is assumes that a marriage will be a sexual union. The Bible affirms sex within marriage is a good gift of God uh, to be enjoyed. 
um, and it, it assumes that it's right that it be in marriage. But it says that here's it, is, it says that all forms of sex outside of that marriage union of a man and a woman are immoral, are are wrong. And it tells us further that God takes it so seriously that He would judge those that break the purity of the marriage bed between one man and woman and engage in a sexual activity outside of that union with another married person, as a married person, or any sexual immorality. A very general word there that captures up every act of sex that's inappropriate. Now, again, aren't we kind of feeling slightly uncomfortable about this command? Now, I think it is one of those age things. Uh, people, most people over 60, 70 perhaps, find themselves going, of course, yes, preach it, brother. <laughs> right, go. Now, I want to say to them, you didn't get it all right as well, right? Okay, you might think you're right, but there's lots of things you did wrong. But, um, uh, but if you're under 40, and the vast majority of you are under 40, um, you'll be feeling really uncomfortable. You might be finding yourself thinking to yourself, have I landed in a foreign country coming to church tonight? This it sounds primitive. All sex outside of a, a man-woman union is immoral and we judge by God. Isn't love love? Like, what is wrong with this church, this Bible? Now, I dare say some of you are finding yourself that. If you're not a churchgoer and hearing this tonight, you might just be feeling very, not just uncomfortable, but pretty shocked. Because if this is what Christians mean and what I'm meant to do, I'm not sure I want to have a bar of it. You might be feeling all of this tonight as well. Now, here's the thing for us. See, there's, what, there's understanding what this verse is saying. Why, we, why is it possible we're reacting like we are to what it's saying? Why is it the case that deep down in our hearts we're going, oh, I'm not sure I bought into this? Well, I want to unpack that for us. Here's why I think it's the way we feel. It's the impact of the sexual revolution from the 1960s. It is the profound way that movement that began in the 60s and has uh, reverberated and rebound down through the decades into the 2020s. It's the way that revolution has shaped our thinking on two things. On what the good life is and what sex is. So I want to take you through those two things. The way the sexual revolution has, has changed the way we think about what the good life is and changed the way we think about what sex is. Let me take the good life. What, what is the best life a person can have? What is the key feature necessary to live the best life? Since the 1960s, uh, it's almost inevitably the case that people will answer with one thing. What's the key to the good life, the flourishing life, the best life? The vast majority of people today, their automatic answer is the key is being free. Free to choose whatever I want to do and be whoever I want to be. Anything that restrains my freedom will undermine and undo the good life. I won't be able to flourish because I won't be able to be who I really am because I'll be constrained, you see. Freedom, being free to do whatever I want and be whoever I want is so profound that shaping of us through the sexual revolution, that we almost can't think of life without freedom as the key to it. To be free is the essence of what it is to be a mature, healthy adult. 
Um, and the enemy of the good life, the best life, the true life, is anything that limits my freedom. This is almost profoundly... And so, culturally, we therefore struggle with the biblical way of thinking about marriage. Now, we don't struggle with the modern view of marriage, because let me take you through the modern view again. The modern view of marriage is that it's not about a lifelong faithful union, one man, one woman. It's about saying, I love you, I'm in love with you publicly, and having that celebrated and affirmed, and I know I can always step out of it whenever I want, with divorce. No fault divorce. If I just want to end this marriage, I don't need to, I just have to say I want to end this marriage. So I know that I can go into this in love experience and publicly celebrating, no, in five years' time I can walk out of it, it doesn't work. There's no lifelong sense about it. And so it's not constraining at all, it just feels lovely. I, I, at the moment, I, I want this experience because it fulfills and rewards my sense of what's meaningful and important for me, but I know that in five years, ten years, if it doesn't continue to do that, I can step out of it and do something else because it's not about life at all. Um, but the Bible's view of marriage as a lifelong monogamous union between a man and a woman is the enemy of freedom. Because it means that if you marry according to the Bible, it means you will give up your freedom. It's inherent in the nature of the Bible's view of marriage that you will be constrained. So the act of marrying automatically is you saying, I'm now going to commit to love you and not be romantically in love with anyone else. I'm going to commit to have a sexual union with you and not engage with sex outside of our marriage union. It's you and you only and no one else. That's a constraint, massive constraint. Um, This is why the feminist movement of the 1960s, 70s, that kind of second, third wave feminist movement, was was in many features at least very anti-marriage and family because they constrained the life of women particularly to be bound to this one man experience. The consequences of freedom being the great value is that biblical marriage is now dead. It's almost, it's almost as a concept disappeared. And you can see this in the fact that the rates of marriage, the the number of people getting married have plummeted. Um, In the 1960s, uh, of all the households, you know, independent households, 80% of them uh, were married couples with a family or, or married. Today, only 50, 49% of all households have a married couple in it. It's just, marriage has crashed. And the rates of divorce have skyrocketed. Uh, 50% of marriages end in divorce. Massive, massive. Marriage as a lifelong monogamous union between a man and a woman is dead. You see, in a world that's bought into the thought that freedom from constraint is the key to the good life, the biblical view of marriage just has no oxygen, just just doesn't survive. You see, there's the first thing. Why have we, why have we got a reaction to the biblical command here to honour the marriage, uh, the biblical view of marriage? Because we we don't think it'll help the good life because the good life's about freedom and this will undermine freedom, so I'm not sure I want to honour that kind of marriage. I'll honour the new kind of marriage, you see. Secondly, our view of sex has been transformed over the last 70, 80 years. Now, this kind of sounds weird. You might be thinking to yourself, how can you change? What, what do you mean view of sex? Sex is just sex. What are you talking about? 
No, let me explain how our view of sex has changed. Here it is. Sex in the last bunch of decades has been disenchanted. Now, I need to explain that word. This is a word that numbers of authors use to explain what's happened in the last, through the sexual revolution. Sex has been disenchanted. The enchantment of sex has been removed. Um, you see, the Bible has a view of sex, and our culture had this view very largely until the, the 50s, 1950s. The Bible has a view of sex that sex is a sacred thing. It's a thing full of enchantment. It's a magical thing. It's, it's a sacred act. It's special. It's full of meaning. The Bible's view is that to have sex with someone is to give to someone something profoundly special that you can't give in any other kind of social interaction. For a woman to give uh, her body in sex to a man uh, is, to, is to give that man something precious and unique. It's sacred. It's a sacred act. Today... The enchantment has been taken out of it. It has been redefined to be something of no inherent meaning. Sex is understood today to be just a physical act between two people that gives physical pleasure and that's it. There's no inherent meaning, there's nothing sacred about it. We are, after all, just animals who have copulate and like all animals have sex, we have sex, but there's nothing inherently meaningful in it. You can give meaning to it if you like. In your experience, if you want to add meaning to it, go for it, but you're adding something that's not there, you're making it up, but that's okay. But rather, really, what we're being told is that sex is no different to any other social interaction. A a person, a man gives a woman a back massage or sex. In our modern view about sex, those two interactions are entirely the same. Or different kind of acts, but no more, that's no more meaningful than a massage. It's just another physical function that you enjoy, and you can enjoy that with whoever you like. Now, now do you not agree that that's how people think about sex today? Is this not what's going on? That's why we no longer talk about, you may have noticed, we no longer talk about prostitution Uh, a man or a woman selling sex. We don't call it prostitution anymore, we call it sex work. Because prostitution has the ring of a taboo and something that's destructive and hurtful to the act of sex. No, 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 we don't think that anymore. Sex is just any other, any other activity. Uh, and so we call it, it's, it's a work like any other. A woman can clean someone's windows or give them sex. And it's just work. Both things are work. And both a woman can choose either career. If she's into that, I mean, I'm not, but if she is, that's okay, it's just work, you see. We've disenchanted sex, we've desacretized sex. Now, why has this happened? To bring freedom. To free people, women particularly, to be able to have sex with whoever they want, whenever they want. To not feel restrained sexually. It's a good and natural thing. It's a way of enjoying and giving and receiving pleasure. There's nothing more in it than that, unless you want to put something more in it, but there's nothing more in it than that. So let's get over this sense that it's somehow special and sacred, get rid of the taboos around casual sex. That's very prudish and old-fashioned. And let's just enjoy sex as you want to enjoy it, with whoever, whenever. Now, we have been trained to think like this for decades, so that I dare say most of you sitting here have never thought there was another way to think about sex. Every movie, every book, 
social media, all of these things speak about, just communicate that this is what sex is. You, you, you can have hookup, casual or meaningfully deep, whichever one you want, because sex is just whatever you want it to be. It's all about winning freedom. And so, these commands here to keep the marriage bed pure and God will judge those who don't, who engage in sex outside of a monogamous one-man, one-woman union for life, who engage with sex, that God will judge that, it just it, um, it reads to us as primitive and horrific and unloving. Um, am I hitting the spot? The problem with this is, the consequence of this way of thinking has been devastating except for a few powerful elites in society and many men. It's, it's like what we talked about a few months, a month or so ago, Proverbs 31. When we lose marriage in the biblical sense as a lifelong commitment of one man, one woman, we lose one of the most important protections available in our society for women and children. In 1968, uh, of all the children living with parents, 8% of them didn't have both biological parents at home. They were raised by a single mum or a mum and a stepdad or they didn't have both, 8%. Now, it's 50%. 50% of kids are living without their biological mum or dad. That is a massive revolution. Now, the problem with that is that every single study that's been produced until it was socially unacceptable to explore this, every single study that's produced about the, the, the good of uh, kids' welfare growing up uh, demonstrated that kids do far better with their biological mum and dad in a stable marriage union. And when you take that away, it has all kinds of consequences for kids. Um, that is, the evidence is now in that the social consequences of kids not growing up with their biological parents is devastating. Now, I hasten to say that we have many uh, single parents, single mums, single dads, who are doing a fantastic job, but they're doing it uh, under difficult circumstances, but they are awesome. And we have step-parents who are doing a fantastic job. And we have kids amongst us, young adults, who have grown up in a divorced home context, and many of you are, are doing fantastic. And there is health and healing, right? But as a society, it's devastating. Um, what fueled all of this? A determination to not honour marriage in the biblical way of thinking. Because here's the thing, when you honour marriage the way the Bible says you ought, when you think about marriage the way you, the Bible says you ought, what happens is you get men who become tempered, that is, no longer brittle, but deeper and stronger, because they're forced to restrain their sexual drive and focus it. Their tendency towards casual sex, they need discipline to get self-control, to bring it in order, and that deepens a man as a man. It makes them a deeper, stronger person. But when you encourage casual sex, hookup culture, um, sex, uh, pornography and so on, it, it dissipates a man, it undoes a man 
The biblical view of marriage is powerfully important for men. But it also gives women support at the very time they need it, in the child-rearing years. Now, we can say all we like about men, men and women being the same and women can look after themselves and a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, all that kind of stuff that you might have heard around the place, do you know what I mean? Like, it's so patronising to say women need men, you can, say all, you can say that all you like. But here's the fact, when a woman gets pregnant, gives birth and then nurtures a young child, she needs support because it is incredibly costly to her. Now, we know this is true because we're asking the government to provide that support. But the best kind of support she can get is the father of the child that she's just had supports her and supports her in a loving union for the sake of the children so that the child grows up with the mum and dad and the dad loving the mum. That's the best way, which is God's way. Any other way is second rate. For the man to be there for life, to love that mother and child, profoundly changes the generations. Sex, friends, is sacred. It is full of enchantment. And many women amongst us know this, men. The women have got this far better than we do. The sexual revolution created the hookup culture, casual sex. But here's the deal. The vast majority of women who who give themselves over thinking this is empowering, who give themselves over to hookup culture and casual sex, are seriously hurt by such a culture. That is, the vast majority of women who consent to casual sex inevitably are left feeling used, depressed, hurt and worthless. Why? Because sex is meaningful. You can say it's not all you like, but it is. And most women in a very visceral, deep way know that it is. We can say it's just like any other social act and we can say that all we like, but deep down we know it's not. Movies portray the life of casual sex as if it's empowering, sex with whoever, whatever, on the first date, second date, with different... But what they don't show is the consequences, and the consequences are real. And I know many women amongst us know this. Because you've had relationships with young men, men, uh, where you thought it was an expression of intimacy, and you've just been used, and you know it. The man has waltzed off. Because men have a different connection to sex, but you have been hurt. Sex is full of enchantment and men, you need to know this to love women well. Sex is a gift from God for the purposes of binding one man and one woman together in a lifelong union. And that then being the means by which, in the loving sexual act, a new life is formed which further unites the man and the woman and for the good of the child with mum and dad there. That's God's purpose and picture. It's the wisdom of God. It's a powerful gift used within the bonds that God has created. Outside of that, it destroys both women and men and children. Let me just consider with you the impact of porn on the world of young men and some women. The world tells us that sex is just a physical thing. It's a scratching of an itch. It's just a physical pleasure. There's nothing meaningful about it. And men are most prone to believe this because of our biology and our testosterone and so on men are most prone to believe it's just it's just a a physical scratch thing and so porn for men feeds on that 
because it communicates to men, um, you, this is just natural, this is just you enjoying a physical act. It doesn't, to men, it doesn't feel like betraying a woman. But it is. It's just hard for men to feel that. But what it's producing is a generation of young men and some women who are totally dysfunctional in their relationships. Young men, you are destroying yourselves. You are hurting yourselves. You are dishonouring God. And you will hurt any marriage partner you enter into. You'll hurt the family. It, it's, it's devastating. Friends, we have been lied to by our society. You have been lied to. By the media, by your educators, by universities, by movies, you've been lied to. Sex is sacred. When you see the consequences of the last 60 years and the messages we've been had, when your eyes are open to the lies and what those lies have produced in the lives of this generation, it's hard to not have emotional reactions like grief and hurt and anger. Look at what we've created. Look at the harm we've brought into our world. Thinking we were pursuing freedom and destroying lives in the process. No wonder God says he will judge because he sees it all so clearly. Look what you've done to my world. He is fully justified to judge. This is God's word. Marriage, biblical marriage, should be honoured by all because it's the glue for society, the gift for women, men and children. So... Young men and women, keep the marriage bed pure. It is for your good and the good of society, the good of the world around you. God will judge because sex outside of those bounds destroys us. Um, men, can I speak to you just for a moment particularly? Start debugging your thinking about sex and the act of sex. It is not just a physical thing. Uh, the, the, the act of porn and so on actually is rebounding on you and undoing you. It's, destroy, it's, it's doing great harm, as well as supporting an industry, do you see? But it's doing great harm. Uh, it, it, I want to empower you to see how much it matters to deal with this issue. Now, I know many of you are trying to deal with it. There's guilt, there's shame, there's all kinds of struggles. Press at it. Keep praying. God's grace is new every morning. Keep pushing forward. Uh, if you have a girlfriend, um, be, be very careful in pushing the boundaries sexually because what you think is happening and what is actually happening, which she is alert to in a way that you aren't, is, is you, are, you are destroying a sacred thing that she has. You're doing great. You, you are taking something and taking something. Do not push the boundaries with your girlfriend. If you move into marriage, be alert to the fact that as you think about marrying, what you're doing is not, not thinking, I'm going to get up and celebrate being in love with a person. No, no, no. What you're thinking about is, I'm going to commit publicly to be for this person for life, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, whatever the future brings. I'm going to stand by this woman, even when I don't enjoy it. That's what you're doing when you get married, which might make you say, who can get married then? Exactly. Think hard about it. It's good for us men to learn to be tempered and strengthened. Um, if you are married, and many of you are amongst us, love your wife. You are to be a one-woman man for life. 
Grow to love her, love the wife of your youth throughout all your years. Women, um, can I just reaffirm the instinct you almost certainly have that sex is sacred and don't let the world tell you otherwise. If you are in a relationship with a boy, a young man, uh, do not give up your virginity to him. That is a precious thing. Don't give it up. Until he stands and says publicly, I will take you to be my wife, to have and to hold for this day forward, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, till death do us part. Until he makes that public commitment, you don't know that he's going to be for you, so don't give it to him. Be careful about who you date. Uh, think carefully uh, about what you're in. Well, no, no. Enjoy relationships, actually. Don't, don't be freaked out about it. Enjoy going out with young men and do that for sure. But just be wise in how you engage physically together. Be alert to the fact that he won't see it the way you see it. And you need to help him and he needs to learn, you see. Um, and when you are married, appreciate the differences between the two of you and be patient with your husband. Now, what do we do if things have gone wrong and there has been divorce? Well, the Bible does allow divorce. Um, in some circumstances of extreme uh, difficulty, uh, for various appropriate reasons, divorce is allowable. And so if you are amongst us actually tonight and you, are, you have experienced divorce in your life, um, it may not have been a sin. And I want to say we love you. It may have been a sin. It is a sin to leave your spouse, your, your husband or wife, to pursue another marriage. That's wrong. You need to repent of that. To you who have grown up in a divorced home, uh, your, life, your life has challenges that many others don't. Um, but here's the wonderful truth. And as I talk with young men and women who have grown up in divorced homes, there's healing, there's grace, there's the love of God. You have a father who will never leave you or desert you. Uh, what can mere mortals do to me? Verse 6. You have God by your side. There is future and hope. And there's a way to break the pattern as you come to a deeper understanding of the cause of Christ and yourself are transformed and changed and go into a marriage with a whole different perspective. But be aware it's a challenge, as it is for all of us. Brothers and sisters, these words are God's good word to us. They're the God who has saved us by the blood of Christ and calls us now to live the life freed from the power of sin, to, for our good and his glory. Take these things to heart. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we come with all kinds of grief and confusion and um, misunderstandings, a culture that has shaped us so much, uh, so much going on in our own heads and minds about all these things, questions. We come with all of this and we come to you knowing that you are a God who loves us, who has loved us so much that you gave your only son. And we, trust our, we entrust ourselves to you and uh, take hold of these promises that you will be with us. Uh, therefore, who can we fear? And we pray, please, that you would strengthen us to, to rethink our world, uh, to think your thoughts and be alert to the way the world has transformed and changed us. Be, be people who actually actively seek to be shaped by you and obey you, that we might obey you in newness of life by the power of your Holy Spirit and find that freedom, the true freedom, 
that is service of you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.